It's time for the chip race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, Ireland's weekly poker podcast. I'm your host David Lappin, alongside Dara O'Carney, and tonight we'll be talking to poker writer Michael Craig, Scoop main event fifth place finisher Kevin Williams, and up and coming Twitch star Finton Hand. Doak will tell us why M is still an important poker concept, and Dara Davy will be bringing us a roundup of this week's action from the real and virtual felt. But first, I'm joined in the studio now by Connor Hogan. Connor's here from Paddy Power. Uh, obviously, a huge weekend planned with the Irish Open this week. Uh, so, Connor, tell me what's on. Um, well, we've got the Last Chance Saloon, which is well underway now at the moment, and we've got buy-ins ranging from fifty quid up to two hundred. Uh, for the duration of this, we've uh, cut reg fees down to just one cent because that's the the bare minimum network requirement. And this Thursday night, you have a live satellite night before the event. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a 200 euro rebuy. It's 225 buy-in and a 200 euro rebuy or top-up. Now, last year we had 202 players, I believe, and we got out 29 seats. And the stacks for that will be 3K, 3K and a 6K top-up after three 30-minute level play. Okay, so plenty of play for your money there. And again, a low rake, once you do avail of the add-on, you end up only being raked at the initial 25 um, tell us a little bit about the venue. Um, what have you got planned? Paddy Power always try and put on something a little bit different or a little bit special. You had a boxing ring last year. Um, well, with regards to the kind of side events running in concurrence with the main event, each night in the bar we're going to have, like the first night we have sumo wrestling, like uh, giant sumo suits. Uh, on Saturday night though, we have again Mad Marty emceeing the return of our famous beer pong. And both both of those will have a cash prize up for grabs on the weekend. And then on the Sunday night, we'll have the Ken Doherty pool competition, which is always popular. And the main event begins on Friday. Um, what can people expect? I know it's a very good structure. What, what What's the day one vibe like in the room? Uh, well, the Burlington, just the, the size of the room is generally perfect for what we like to have on there. Just And with the bar to the side. Like, I mean, we're trying to direct things in the bar, in the room this year to create a greater buzz. But I mean, like... I don't think there's anything that can compare to day one in the Burlington for the Irish Open with a with a general buzz. Yeah, and I think with the the larger buy-in this year again, the, the return to a, a sort of an international event buy-in, I think we can expect a lot more Americans. And uh, I know you've a few special guests coming over. Yeah, we do. We have uh, Mike Sexton who very cleverly uh, tweeted there the other day that he was doing a bit of training for the Irish Open and heading out for the next three nights drinking. Yeah, well. So. <laughs> and Kara uh, Scott will be over. We have Dale Phillip coming back from Thailand to play it. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, yeah, and then we also have uh, Thor Hansen, who is over here for the Norwegian, is going to hang on and play the main. Oh, absolute gentleman of the game. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, once, well, we knew we'd be over for the Norwegian, and his health, as is widely documented, hasn't been the best of late. So it was just a case of figuring out whether it was viable for him from a health perspective to stay on for it. And this year, uh, thankfully, it was. So he's going to hang around and it'll be his first time playing, as far as I know. And Connor, what have you got in terms of side events? Obviously, the, the main event is, is the big show, and you're, I know you're hoping to get maybe a 1.2 million prize pool, 400 plus runners. Um, but it's not the only event at the weekend. No, 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 absolutely not. Like, especially with the buy in going up this year, the buy in is 3,500. We're also running an Irish Open Mini, which will replicate the main event structure, but for a much. Uh, much smaller buy-in, it'll be 300 plus 35, and I think that the levels are just slightly shorter, but the, the structure itself doesn't change from the main. Uh, we also have a scalps game on the Monday because, like, I mean, we always felt sometimes, you know, because we're down to a final table in the main event, the atmosphere kind of uh, kind of dies down a little, apart from the, 
the one year Paul Carr came second <laughs> as an exception. So we felt that a scalps game on the Monday would be you know a good way to generate a bit more atmosphere around the room. We also have the the Liam Flood Memorial Tournament now. Of course, the trophy for the Irish Open is named after Terry Rogers. So we just thought with Liam passing last year, and all he did for for the Irish Open for for poker in Europe, even Texas Hold'em in Europe, it, it was fitting that we named this tournament after him. So we've. Uh, an 1100 euro buy-in event, the Liam Flood Memorial, which we're hoping to get good numbers for. Thank you so much for coming in right now, Connor. I, I know you have a busy day and you have a busy week planned now with the, up there in Paddy Power, um, but I hope it goes really well for you. I hope uh, you smash the 1.2 million expectation, maybe get 1.5, and, uh, and it should be a good weekend. Thanks very much. We're joined now on the line by... Kevin Williams, theatre director extraordinaire and poker professional. Uh, Kevin, you, you have a bit of a gripe. You think that the, uh, the the landscape of live poker in the UK is changing and, 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 and you're worried about this change. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's like quite as harsh as a gripe, but um, I think there's lots of good things going on. But uh, I, I question like, just a few, a few things. That, I've been in the game for about 10 years now and... W- if you look at anybody who started playing around the time I started playing or before that, you look at their Hender mob, you scroll down, uh, and rather than saying EPT side event or GUKPT or whatever, it says things like uh, Winter Festival or uh, Summer Slammer or I don't know, that, that, that might be wrestling, but you know, <laughs> some kind of weird festival name like that. And it, it's, it's indicative of a, a culture of live poker that's changed where it used to be, especially in the UK, all based on on local festivals that were run by local casinos. Um, and the main difference there to to what we've got now is that um, these these festivals would be filled with lots of local players that have been qualifying live in the casino for a long time. Uh, and then wherever you go, obviously, there was a new kind of like batch of local money uh, and batch of local players that were quite specific to, the, to those local casinos. Now, there were still traveling pros and people did still like travel to these festivals. Um, but now fast forward to what we have nowadays. We have these huge tours uh, which have much bigger fields and much bigger prize pools. Um, but they're, I would I mean, I don't have the exact numbers on this, but anecdotally, I would say might be made up between 80 and 90 percent of traveling players now we we know uh as as pros who kind of pay attention to our expenses and and our overheads and that kind of thing that um is arguably not sustainable to uh if, if, if the only poker you play is is live tournaments it's not sustainable to kind of cover the 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 travel expenses um and make a living purely doing those things and that that makes me wonder if like if there's a lot of people who are maybe not professionals but who play a hell of a lot of poker and and who are always on every stop of these tours um how sustainable that is is everybody just going to run out of money at some point yeah i mean i think i i, I agree with you that that it's changed and even you know somebody coming from the outside i i would have played the gukpts when they were more traditional let's say even though they obviously had some online qualifiers and more recently the UK IPTs but I actually think that a lot of the players who fill up the UK IPT even if they've qualified online they still very much fall under the category of recreational players Um, so I think all that's really happened is that instead of pulling from the local area it's pulling players of all types um, more travelling pros but also more travelling recreational players so I'm not sure that it's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, Kev, you can't you can't disagree with that. Like, you know, you're one of the pros in the game. But when you travel, there's guys traveling from your home city to another city, and they're the recreational guys from your town. It's just got bigger, surely. 
Sure, but um, what, I'd like to say two things. One, I question, uh, I'll get onto this in a sec, but I question whether bigger uh, is necessarily better. Bigger's um, always better. <laughs> well, that's that's just what... Well, that's what your me. girlfriend might think. Yeah, that's what I get told. But um, the, yeah, no, but um, uh, the other thing what, that you... you d- Online qualifiers are definitely like a completely different animal to live qualifiers. And you only have to talk to some of the people who have to put up the overlays in some of these big tournaments that have lots of online qualifiers and sometimes they'll gripe and we there might be guilty people in the room here that um lots of those those seats are won by by pros i don't know who I don't you're, know you're having to go with doke here you're just having to go <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know who's winning all those seats, i don't know who that but, person is um but i'd say that the the online satellites are and we'll just online poker in general is obviously quite considerably tougher than these live uh, satellites used to be. Um, so arguably, okay, you can play it from your own home, but maybe um, there's a different type of recreational player coming through. Uh, the, the, the general online qualifier is going to be of a slightly higher standard, I reckon, than or probably a considerably higher standard than your recreational player who just plays weekly in his, in his live casino and his, his local festival is his one big shot. Kevin, is that not just basically the, the nature of uh, poker is changing? People now see poker as something that they'll travel for a weekend and basically they're not really thinking about the expenses in terms of you know the way we think of them. They're thinking of it as, I'm going to have a nice weekend away from home um, essentially, like it's a it's a it's a mini holiday. Okay, sure. But if if we if we view and uh, there's there's by the way there's tons of recreational players who I consider to be a lot better than uh, a lot of quote unquote pros on the circuit. But let let's take the type of recreational player that might have a negative expectation in these tournaments. The type of recreational player who really is just going like for a punt and for a holiday. Um, y- you know, n- not all of these people have completely unlimited sources of money. So even if in their mind they don't mind spending a bit of money on it, it is costing them more money. And if we view these people as like, people talk a lot online about um, the life of new accounts and the life of losing accounts and how to kind of extend the life of losing accounts so people don't just go broke too quickly and they can learn, develop and maybe become winning players or just survive longer in the game. And I think that that's the same with with live recreational players, if they, if if the majority of their poker is poker that they have to spend quite a lot of money getting to, then they're not going to survive as long in the game. And do you think poker is in danger of cannibalizing itself? I think it might be. I mean, we look and we see these like wonderful, you know, we're about to have like, uh, we're about to have like the second like million pound guaranteed tournament at Dust Till Dawn this in the UK this year. I mean, that's incredible, you know. Um, and and people talk about how, how what a great thing that is, and in in many ways it is. But that's three people getting all the money both times. Exactly. That's that's the that's the big problem. These these festivals, by the way, these local festivals that we used to have, they weren't bowl festivals. You know, they were like I remember in, in, at the rendezvous in Brighton, which was when I, where I was at uni, and these were the ones I was playing. There used to be four times a year. There was a festival that had a 500 main event, which got like 100 runners and like 15 grand for first. There was a 300. There was a 200. There was a 100 cubed, and there was like a 100 freeze out every single time. It got runners every single time. More recently, these uh, there were the same casino had a festival and like the main event was a 200. Um, and the, these these kind of local festivals are really suffering because of these huge tournaments, which have these like massive they have this massive jackpot appeal. But I, I would question whether that's necessarily a good thing. I'd say with some of these like really massive prizes, there's an argument that it's harder that it stays in the game. 
when 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 there's if you win like 10 grand or 20 grand playing poker obviously that is quite a lot of money it's it's likely that a fair amount of that you might reinvest back into the game if you win like i remember when i i, I played the um the manchester ukipt in like season two and i I, I went reasonably deep, and I, I, I spent a lot of time talking to the guy who went on a win, to win it. And he was he was just a kind of a recreational player. He had a job and whatever, um, and he won it for whatever he, for whatever he won, like a hundred grand or whatever. And like I asked him, like the next time I saw him, like oh you know, uh, so you know, what did you do with the money? He said I bought a flat, or like I put down a deposit on a flat or whatever. I think when when people win like huge, like if someone wins like two hundred grand, one person wins two hundred grand. It's quite difficult for that money to all get filtered back into the poker economy. Yeah, but I didn't hear you complaining when it was you who won 200 grand there last summer. Uh, (laughs) Believe me, plenty of that went back into the poker economy. (laughs) (laughs) But does that not make the point that it's it 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 kind of who wins it rather than what the amount is? I mean, if a if a professional player even wins an EPT, you know, often all that happens is now they they go off and they play every high roller they can they can reg for and. it's often true. I mean, I mean, some some of the guys will, but like, I mean, I, I guess the number might change a little bit. But if I won, I don't know. I remember, I remember when I was like really first getting into the game. There was that guy. Uh, I think his name was Jeff Williams, the yellow yellow submarine guy. The guy was like nineteen and he couldn't play at home in, in America, but he came and he like won the EPT Barcelona, I think it was. And there was an interview with him, and he said like, so, as soon as he won that money, it was like a million or something. The best advice somebody ever gave him is don't lose this money playing poker. And I think that that is still something that 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 sticks with pros. You know, it's tough being a poker pro, and we're also always talking about like having. I don't know some other assets or some other kind of like revenue stream or whatever, and I'm not sure that uh, people. I, I I think I don't I think you might be overestimating the heart some of these people have. Like there, there might be not enough gambling <laughs> heart in the poker world anymore, and a little bit too much. There's uh, too many nits and cowards out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the uh, yeah, exactly. So, but, but yeah, so I think a lot of pros like when if they win like if they really do win a significantly large amount of money maybe they will go and like buy a property or something like that well listen thank you so much kevin williams guys you know we all like a big tournament but you've heard it here first from kevin williams bigger is not always better support your local festival time for dara davy with the news thanks dave in the live world ept malta and the norwegian championship both concluded this week in Malta, congratulations are due to Rory Brown, who cashed the main event and 2K Turbo Bounty side event for a combined €15,200. Nearer to home, Declan Connolly and Noel Murphy both final table the JP Masters main event on a table and festival dominated by Norwegian names. Declan finishing the best of the two, nabbing fifth place for €10,000. The entire festival featuring staggering 57 tournaments and over 2,000 individual players over nine days. Paul Kerr continued a run we may have never seen before winning yet another big field tournament in 2015, this time a €350 side event at the Norwegian Championship for just over €10,000. And finally, in the online world last night, the Micro Millions and FTOP series concluded while the Scoop series on Pokestars.fr began. The highlight caches for the Irish were Jude Ainsworth taking 4th place in Scoop Event 1 for just under $11,000 and Andrew Sweeney taking 7th place in the Sunday Second Chance for $8,000. Also, congratulations to Ken Powell, who a few nights ago outright won the $1,000 Thursday Thrill on Pokestars for $45,500 and banking his staggering progressive knockout bounty of $25,000 on top of this. Of all those online scores, which one really stood out for you? 
I would definitely have to be Ken Powell's massive win on Thursday. Um, it's pretty rare to get the biggest results of any Irish person online not be on a Sunday, and this one was by a massive margin. I think he won 70,000 plus on a Thursday, which is just a staggering result in such a tough field, so very impressive for Ken. Yeah, it sounds like the Irish lads had a great time in Malta. Is there any part of you that regrets not going? Uh, yeah, definitely. Like, um, I was actually booking my flights for Malta um, along with you, Dave, up until uh, I realised there was a massive clash with the two festivals, so I could I had to pick one or the other, and the fact that Norwegians were on my doorstep, it's just such an amazing festival, particularly with in regards to cash game action. There's just nothing like it in the world. And it's just, it, it's literally one of the best festivals in the world, maybe outside uh, the World Series. There's also just tournaments going off like every two hours. So it's just an amazing situation to be playing poker in. Yeah, as a tournament player, there's just something so cool about busting a tourney and being able to snap late reg another. And that brings up an interesting point. Some professional players will view the early stages of a live tournament, say that 300 big blind, 200 big blind phase where you're going in to get a 30k stack and the blinds are 50, 100 as a time where they'd better spend it in bed. What do you what do you think about that approach? I think it depends on how late their online session or beer drinking session went the previous night. But um, in general, I think those levels, particularly in live tournaments and kind of the, the big buy-in style live tournaments that have a lot of satellited in recreational players, um, it's actually a critical stage of the tournament that online guys tend to completely dismiss yeah, I agree with you. I, th- I think there is there's information to be picked up in those early stages. There's profit to be made in those early stages. You can get a guy to make a really big mistake, set over set him, where maybe you're the kind of guy who'd get away from a tough Ab- spot. Absolutely, yeah. It's a situation where you may add 50% to your stack, but you may only be in risk of losing 10% of your own. Just through the nature of you being so experienced and being 300 big blinds deep, you'll realise that there's no situation you should ever get stacked on and maybe some, as you said, like horrific set under set might cost you 50 bigs, but it may cost your opponent 150. Yeah. So. Now, the flip side of that, our good friend Kevin Killeen, I think he almost arrived late to the UKIP Dublin last year. He was flying in, I think, with uh, like five or 10 minutes into the last break that you could reg on. And he, he, he sits down and two days later, he's the, he's the tournament winner. No, yeah. He would be the, of the complete opposite view. He would tell us, no, 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 you want to just get in there when it's 50 bigs and play 50 bigs better than everyone else. The irony, of course, being yeah that he ends up winning that tournament, <laughs> lasting all of us. But um, yeah, I mean, again, Kevin is an online based guy and he's used to playing short stacks. And I guess he just views playing 200 big blinds as a complete waste of time. And I think he views being awake at like 12 until 3pm as being a waste of time. Yeah, because heaven forbid you wouldn't want to actually see like a few hours of sunlight during the day. No. Um, (laughs) But I mean, it's again, it's the online versus live approach. Your hourly rate or your hourly expectation during those first levels in terms of chips is going to be very small. Mm. But I think the long-term gain of getting to know your players, like let's say you're playing with let's play, say you're playing six-handed at the start of the tournament for the first two hours or something like that, those five opponents you're playing with an hour 10 of the day, you may find out something now that costs you nothing that will be, be a massive benefit when the blinds are much higher, yeah, I that, personally think. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. And I, and I also feel as though if you're a recreational player and obviously you want to play the tournament because it's how you want to spend your Saturday, arriving early is the right thing to do because a lot of the pros aren't going to show up until two hours in. So if you want to play a softer game for that first two hours, play against the other recreational guys who also showed up on time, let the baller arrive in two hours later, three hours later, or even after the dinner break. Seven hours late sometimes, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And and you're going to get to sit at a softer table and, and, and 
play poker against hopefully not one of the bigger threats that's going to eventually arrive. Yeah, absolutely. Or even like build your twenty or 30,000 stack up by 50% to the point you can take a hit later on. And, you know, you, let's say you do get outplayed by that professional or whoever it may be, or that, that damage will be less to you. Chip Race would love to hear from you. Get in touch via Twitter at The Chip Race and find us on Facebook. We're back now uh, with Dara O'Carney. Dara, this new Fandangle phenomenon, Twitch TV, has now taken over poker. It, it took over video games first, and now it's it seems like every second poker player is doing it. Do you know, do you know much about this, or are you one, one of the old guys like me who doesn't? Uh, yeah, I know a bit. I know a bit about it. It's it's basically guys essentially live streaming from their computer as they play online poker, and uh, then the guys who are better at it interact with their fans as well. My only uh, interaction with it over the last few months was that crazy video with that kid going mental with his queens dancing. Sticky Rice, yeah, That's right, yeah, yeah. That, that, I think that was a lot of people's first uh, intro to it. He's an example of somebody who can make it very entertaining, um, and you're you're they're getting very good numbers. Uh, guys like Jamie Staples um, and Jason Somerville, uh, probably a pioneer in that area. Um, they very much led the way on that. Well, here's another man who could make it very entertaining, and if any Irishman can, it's him. Finton Han, we're, we're joined on the line. I think you're in Malta right now. Is that right? Yeah, I've been living here for the past two years. Yeah. And what got you into this Twitch business? Uh, I've known James Staples for the past two or three years and he recommended to me about three or four months ago but I had it in my head that I wanted to go for SME so I just put it to the back of my mind but once I gave that up I just wanted a fresh challenge and it seemed like a good way to go SNE to those out there is Supernova Elite it's what the really sick grinders do uh, grinding uh, a million points one, one in, million FPPs yeah. one million FPPs in a single year I think that's about 200k in rake Give or take, yeah, it's yeah. just over 200k. Yeah. So you're talking mega volume here. Uh, Finton has been an 18 uh, man sit and go wizard for well, about two, two and a half years. Finton, is that right? Yeah, playing. But, but my main game for the past two years was uh, 18 mans, yeah. And you're playing them right now? No, uh, I haven't played them. I'm playing 180s on the stream because I feel that the uh, 18 mans playing for seven points is a little bit boring yeah. to broadcast the viewers. And you're taking a fairly um, interesting angle on this in that you're doing a bankroll challenge uh, on your Twitch stream. I think you started with $350. How's it been going for you? Uh, Initially, I had a bit of a swing and I had to move down. And I I actually did play some 18 mans on the stream just because there's a lot less variance involved. But uh, I've moved back up. I just wanted to kind of show people that it's still possible without huge investment to go from playing lower stakes up to mid stakes, which I guess is where we're aiming for it on the stream. And what was your lowest point there from 350 uh, I think I hit just under $100, which obviously wasn't ideal. And I'm not one for tilt, and I control my emotions quite well playing poker. But when I thought I was going to bust the $350 bankroll after walking into the challenge, that was the most tilt that I've gotten years playing poker. Uh, the, the whole bankroll challenge is an idea which has been around for a long time, but it seems to have come back in popularity. I know Andre Coimbra did a, a, a big one for Poker Stars, I think, last year. Um, how did you find switching from playing your normal game to doing, you know, playing playing much lower? Uh, I didn't. I, I even though I was obviously beating the games, the low stakes one eighties when I started playing. I don't think I adjusted correctly, and I was still playing too wide in certain spots, and then other spots I was calling it off too light because they are a lot different to high stakes singles and mid stakes singles. And having started at the three dollar fifty level, what what are you up to now? I started at the two dollar uh, freeze out level, and oh, now wow. I'm up to the three. To the, yeah, <laughs> to the I'm playing the three dollar rebuys, which are an ABI of about between eight and ten dollars on any given day. So uh, I I do play some A freeze outs, and I, like I want to mix in more MTTs rather than 
moving up in sitting goals because I feel MTTs is where people enjoy watching. Like they've got that big sweat of a chance of winning, you know, the, a lot of the gold, as they say. Sure. And how do you feel about the changes that Stars have um, done to the 180 mans where they brought in Antis right from the start? I mean, Antis are always going to benefit better players and uh, it makes it a little bit less monotonous and boring at the beginning. So I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, I've seen a lot of bitching online, but I actually love it. I think um, I, the thing I used to hate about the 180 mans was th- those early stages where you're just clicking the, 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 the pre-fold button a lot. Yeah, no, I think it's going to benefit the game and it, it's going to make, I'm not sure if it will how it'll affect the wise, but it should make our a little bit higher anyway. And at a slightly wider level, uh, Finton, what's your goal with this? Is it is it fame? No, I just um, I just wanted a fresh challenge. I've been playing eighteen mans for the past years, and to like eighteen mans, there's not too much excitement, and I'm too much. I'm a little scaredy cat when it comes to MTA variants. <laughs> so I just wanted a fresh challenge. I'm not too sure how long I'll continue to do it for because there is a significant cost of not grinding my normal games. But um, for now, I'm going to do it. I've got a custom layout made. I've been doing a little bit of work on the stream, and I am enjoying it, but I'm not too sure how long I can justify keeping it up if I don't start to make some money off Twitch itself. For anybody out there who wants to keep tabs on Finton, uh, you can join his ever-growing Legion fan base that he's uh, that he's compiling. Uh, if you go to twitch.tv forward slash easywithaces, that's his online screen name, you can check him out there. Well, listen, Finton, thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you luck with the challenge and, and of course, with your, uh, with your newfound success and fame that I'm sure Twitch will bring you. Thanks very much, lads. Appreciate it. Time for a little bit of strategy. Uh, Daryl Carney, I I remember when I started playing poker for the first time, uh, people recommended Harrington on Hold'em. It was a great sort of, not necessarily beginner's book, there was some advanced stuff in there, but it certainly gave you your first sort of uh, look at poker viewed in a more analytical way. There's one concept in that book that still holds as true today as it it did then. A lot of uh, ideas in poker books sort of, you know, the time moves beyond them and maybe they're not as relevant anymore. But this this one in particular still holds true. Yeah, it's the concept of M. um, And I... As far as I understand, M comes from Paul McGreal, the first guy to actually formulate it. But Harrington was the first guy to really, um, I guess, popularise the concept in his book. And it kind of comes back to what I think a lot of poker strategy back then was, which was that people started to do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. I remember when I started playing poker and, you know, you got down to 10 big blinds and the way pros would talk to you uh, about it was, well, you're short stack now, so you need to double up. So you should just uh, shove all in a lot. They would formulate the strategy based on your current stack. It was kind of a wishful thinking. Well, I don't want to have 10 big blinds. I want to have 20. Therefore, I'll go all in and and hope to double up. But actually, uh, all good poker strategy is risk reward. And it's how much am I risking uh, and and what's the reward? And and when you're short stacked, um, you're obviously risking less because you you have a relatively short stack. And and if you do pick up the blinds and antis, uh, it's more. So the antis become important then. It's not just the blinds that you're picking up. if you, for example, if there's a you know there's a there's a small blind and a big blind, and then typically the antes add up to another big blind, so you're you're picking up two and a half big blinds when you shove ten big blinds, so you're adding twenty five percent to your stack. The concept that um, McGreal came up with and that Harrington popularized in his book um, was that you divide your stack by um, what you'll pick up uh, if you, if you get the shove through uncontested. So ten divided by two point five is four. So in this case, your M is four. So 
the idea is that you shove more wide the shorter your M is and and obviously there are phases of the game or certain tournaments where there are no antis and then there are tournaments that have big antis and I guess it it sort of it it guards against the tendency that I think people had and I certainly had when I started playing poker which was to think in big blinds I've got 10 big blinds I've got 12 big blinds and that can lead to some false assumptions because 12 big blinds when there's antis in the game is very different to 12 big blinds when there's no anti in the game or if there's a big anti in the game yeah totally I, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about you know people doing the right thing for the wrong reason it's like people had a chart in their head going, well, uh, you know, ace-queen is okay to show for 12 big blinds. Uh, ace-four, I want to be down as low as six big blinds. But actually, that's not the way to think about it. The, the, the way you should think about it is, what am I picking up uh, if the shove gets true uh, uncontested? So therefore, you have to take the antis into account. Okay, well, there you have it, guys. If you're out there and you're still thinking in big blinds, maybe have a look at that piece in Harrington. Maybe maybe look it up on Wikipedia or somewhere you might find it. Start thinking in M. It will, it will help you lead you to better decisions uh, on the felt. <laughs> Between 2001 and 2004, an American banker by the name of Andy Beale played in high-stakes heads-up limit hold'em games against a roster of Vegas professionals who became collectively known as the Corporation. They were Ted Forrest, Jennifer Harmon, Min Lai, Doyle Brunson, Todd Brunson, Howard Lederer, David Gray, Chip Reese, Gus Hansen, Phil Ivey, Barry Greenstein, Lyle Berman and others who kept their identities anonymous. On May 13th, 2004 at the Bellagio, Beale won one of the biggest hands in poker history for $11.7 million, but ultimately finished down to the pros who pooled their money and played him in shifts. Our next guest, Michael Craig, chronicled Andy Beale's experiences in these games in his 2005 book, The Professor, the Banker and the Suicide King. He also wrote a series of articles for Bluff magazine when the games resumed in 2006, and Andy Beale, having initially been down $3.3 million, came back to be up over $13 million, only for Phil Ivey to save the corporation's bacon, winning an astonishing $16.6 million in three straight days. Michael, at Andy's request, you sat at the table watching some of these games, hands with blinds of like 100k, 200k at times. That must have been utterly surreal. It was, it was very surreal, especially because Andy wore uh, big headphones and the pros weren't generally allowed to have anybody else at the table, so there was very little table chatter. It was a friendly atmosphere. They would occasionally chat, and they always chatted during breaks, but the game was played in utter silence, and so the only sound you hear is the chips being thrown in, and you only occasionally reflect on the fact that all the chips are $25,000 chips, <laughs> but uh, it, was, uh, it, it, it was an unusual experience. Uh, it, it's kind of weird. You sort of think of watching a poker game for 13 days as being something that could be extremely boring, especially when you can't see the whole cards. But actually, when you, when you watch poker for that long, you see interesting things, things that you wouldn't imagine. And uh, over time, it ended up being... Uh, a lot of material for some great stories and frankly material that I thought I would end up writing into another book that I've never gotten around to doing. Uh, Who were the more talkative guys who did want to engage and then for them maybe Andy was a little reticent and then who were the guys who wanted to do what Andy was doing and just sort of shut down and play their kind of clinical game? Well Andy was you know you know he what he did is he he wore uh, foam earplugs and then a large set of like the uh, airline employee type headphones over it. So uh, while he didn't say no talking aloud at the table, he was difficult to communicate with once he had those things on. And it, when the players would talk with him, uh, he would usually, you know, the first thing he would say is, what? And then he would take off uh, the headphone uh, and uh, be able to hear them. And they would say something like, you know, like a joke about the previous hand or something like that. And Andy would engage in a little bit of banter and say, 
oh, now the next thing you know, I'll be paying more attention to this talk, which is way more interesting than our game here, and uh, then I'll be down a couple million dollars. So you have to excuse me. And he put the <laughs> headphone back on, put his game face back on, and that might take place over a hand or two. And so, uh, I mean, just about everybody, talk with them a little bit. These are, you know, these are pretty friendly people. Ted Forrest uh, is a pretty friendly guy. Jennifer Harmon is very friendly. Todd Brunson is a friendly guy at the table. Phil Ivey, who you think of as being you know, the ultimate intimidator at the table, is you know certainly not that way when he's playing you know a heads-up game. And was it a um, deliberate strategy by Andy that he didn't want to interact with the pros? Was that part of his game plan, or uh, did he have some other reason for that? No, it was definitely part of his game plan. He, uh, I, I played in social games with Andy, and he likes to, you know, he, you know, he likes to banter and joke around and things like that. But uh, when he when he plays the pros for the big money, at least when he was doing it, when I was part of the story or following the story, he felt like, you know, he had to figure out the way to play his best at every moment, and that meant every single little thing that uh, all his movements were timed and whatever he was saying or not saying was timed and he always held his hands in the same you know his you know his you know his his hands in the same way and always looked at his cards the same way and michael obviously you had your own interactions with those pros uh, did you have your game plan when you you got to sit there i know there was an interaction uh, you wrote it really beautifully in the book uh, with with you and ivy where ivy was i guess quite suspicious of your role being there maybe is it fair to say Yes, the, uh, the yeah, this was uh, this was for the articles for Bluff. Phil Ivy is you know Phil Ivy can be as intense in a casual conversation as you could imagine him being at a poker table. Uh, his his stare I would describe as baleful. That uh, you know he you know he focuses on you and uh, you know I don't know what it's like to play high stakes against him, but just sitting at the table when he was wondering why I should be there made me feel uncomfortable and uh, a couple of our early interactions he would say now what are you doing with these notes that you take of each hand and i said i'm just using them for the article and he said you know is anybody else seeing them and i said no and then he would you know looked at me you know like you know you know stare at me <laughs> you know take what seemed like a minute and say is anybody else seeing these notes <laughs> and it, you know it was you know it was cinematic except it was real that this was you know this was a real guy in front of me who you know wasn't threatening me or anything but I felt you know I I, I felt exposed in front of him uh, he had that kind of intensity to him he was basically, so, he was basically uh, but, trying to see if you were bluffing or not right <laughs> and so it was you know it was very interesting and uh, you know a great little piece of insight in an unexpected way. An incredibly difficult spot for you, Michael, because you're sitting there, you're you're the guest of Andy, you know, the, the pros are probably begrudgingly happy for you to be there because it's facilitated this game. But but there you are, every single hand is the, the, the value of a really expensive house and you're just there kind of sort of hanging out yeah and and maybe you know you are going to get to interact with these guys a little bit in between hands or, or whatever I know there was a, an incident where did Ivy want to borrow your headphones or there was something with headphones um, yeah and, and of course just to keep you know I felt like you know just don't intimidate me anymore you know here have the headphones <laughs> have, have the iPod I'll even let you see you know my my lame uh, you know mixes that I put together <laughs> just you know, listen to headphones and don't stare at me anymore and 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 Michael obviously your experience of doing that kind of gave you the bug for poker uh, 
following up not too far behind was the the full tilt strategy guide which I know for me was a huge helping tool as I was learning the game for the first time um how much did the process of writing that book help you turn into a pro player yourself you obviously played professionally usually on the full tilt site uh, I know you had some great success at the world series the highlight maybe being the the Raz second place to Jeffrey Lissandro um you know, just getting to tug on the, the, the coats of those great poker minds and, and have those conversations and be able to compile a book like that. What, you know, what, what role did that play for you? It was, it was gigantic, David. And, uh, and I appreciate your, you know, you're saying good things about that book. And I'm glad that it helped you. The, I think the book has, it's always gotten good reviews and people who've looked at it have said good things about it. But I, I don't think people, uh, I don't think people realize that the process of writing the book for me is an immersive version of what happens when you read the book. And for me, it was spending like a year and a half with people like Chris Ferguson and Howard Letterer and Ted Forrest saying, okay, well, we, you know, when you raise and you get re-raised and then you call and then like the board comes out in a certain fashion and, you know, you play different hypotheticals and you say, now, what do you do here? And it's not so much like what, what they do, but them explaining why they do what they do. You then continued your association with Full Tilt writing their blog for many years, covering events for them and creating a week-to-week content for their site. I think I remember you once making reference to there being over a million words in that blog, that it was longer than War and Peace. Yeah, the, uh, I, I think my blogs totaled like a million words or something like that. I had, you know, I'd cut, and, like every six months or so, I would cut and paste all the blogs into a, you know, uh, uh, a word file or a text file. Uh, just so that I would have them around, which is actually good now because uh, unless you go into some web archive service, the old full tilt posts aren't up. And uh, in some ways that's good because when I read those million words, uh, sometimes I see like... You read them? You, know, you actually go back and read your own million words? My God. I do that too, David. <laughs> well, well, uh, let me clarify, not the entire million, but... You did say uh, a million. No- you did say a million. I'm going to have to call you on that. I think we found out that that is what you do, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, I just just sit around at night not playing <laughs> online poker because you can't play in the United States. Just reading my old words, uh, <laughs> thinking, thinking about what used to be. Speaking of what used to be, I met you for the first time in London at the Million Pound Challenge. We'd been corresponding, I think, a couple of times because I was a fan of your work and we had gotten involved in a few home game type things, sort of private games on full tilt. And you were very right. good to contribute to them and, and, and be a red pro so we could all get your bounty that night. Um, but it was really nice meeting you and, and, and I got to go over to London. It was my first sort of outing as a professional player. Um, I had kind of won a satellite into this tournament and um, you were covering the event for full tilt at the time i remember meeting you well at the time david uh, especially because as you said you were a fan of mine uh, the you know I, I i you know if i keep a list of all my fans i can usually keep it easily in my pocket so uh, i wasn't about to forget you <laughs> and and tell me now uh, this is a really interesting area of crossover dara O'Carney here beside me uh, a couple of weeks ago wrote an article about the uh, michael bowling of the university of alberta's sort of claims to have solved in inverted commas limit hold'em now i know it's kind of a soft solve or whatever you'd like to describe it that way and i know you're writing an, a similar article at the moment uh, yes, uh, I interviewed uh, Professor Bowling, and I I was flattered that he, he he put me in the footnotes of the article. And I was also just curious about this idea that you know when you when you title an article, heads up, limit hold'em is solved. 
what exactly that means. Yeah, the piece I wrote for Bluff Europe, um, I, I, I was trying to focus uh, p- mostly on the kind of sensationalist take that most of the media took on it, which was kind of like, oh, poker is solved now. Uh, this is the end for, for human players. Um, but the reality is it's actually a very limited form of the game which has been solved. It's It's heads up. Uh, limit poker and in fact right. from, the, from the interviews I heard with, with Professor Bowling and the, and the other people involved they've made it pretty clear that um, they don't think it, it that for example no limit will ever be solved that there's just too many uh, decision points compared to limit Right. The uh, the thing that uh, that you know I you know I interviewed uh, Professor and I got involved in some of the other projects I was doing for Poker Start, So I haven't finished the article. Uh, the thing that I uh, want to focus on in the article I write is that uh, and and uh, Joe, you'll probably uh, this will probably fit with uh, the analysis that you've done. Is that the you know when somebody does something like this, it's easy for poker players to get defensive because it sounds like it belittles what poker players do to say, you know, the game is solved and it's solved by, you know, people who aren't even necessarily poker players. But the, you know, I look at it like, you know, every type of development like this that uh, that points out more enlightened ways to play the game ends up in the long run being beneficial. I mean, in some ways, there were people who said when, uh, when Super System came out that that was going to be bad for poker, that uh, it was going to, you know, that everybody was going to learn how to play poker like this and uh, it would take the fun out of the no limit games, or it would take fun, you know, it would take fun out of certain games. And in fact, you know, over the years, as the reputation of the book grew, it improved the quality of poker because the idea that you can get better at it, and that you know there are skill elements and things that you can learn and find out, uh, make the game more appealing to people. I agree because one of the things which. Um the artificial ex- intelligence experience has proven about poker. Poker often has a kind of a inferiority complex to other games like chess, but the reality is that chess is a lot easier for something like um, artificial intelligence to solve that than poker is proving to be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, it's it's pretty certain that um, artificial intelligence will never solve you know full ring poker because when you involve when you involve so many extra players, the level of complexity just increases. So it, it actually shows that poker is actually a more complex game than chess. Right. The uh, I, that, that that's a very good point and uh, uh, something that the poker players should really consider because I, I know the the impulse is to uh, is to discredit the work if you're a poker player, but it's actually you know it, it, it actually has the opposite effect. Yeah, and it kind of brings us full circle to uh, to what Andy Beale was doing because he obviously hired some pretty significant mathematicians of, of of the time. I know it's ten years ago now to sort of crunch the numbers and help him improve his game, particularly when he went back for his second go at the pros. And that sort of process that he sort of uh, wanted to get involved in was very much seeing what was happening with the game and seeing that um, the game, you know, even at some level was was more solvable. And that's what actually excited him about the game because he was that kind of person. Obviously, he has that outstanding uh, Fermat's theory, uh, Beale conjecture, million dollar prize sitting out there for anyone who can prove his, his points right. correctly. It, it, it seemed to be important to him that uh, Limit Hold'em was, was his area of interest because it might be possible to solve it. Right, and and that was uh, that, that was kind of what got me interested, uh, uh, you know, in what the, the work that uh, uh, Professor Bowling was doing because I I knew that Andy Beale did have that interest. It, that study coming out coming out corresponded uh, within a week or two of Andy Beale coming back to Las Vegas and playing uh, for a day with Todd Brunson. Uh, not a game that I had any involvement in, so I don't have any firsthand knowledge of it. But uh, I thought that it. 
it, it sort of it reminded me a great deal of Andy Beale's original approach to the game, and you know the, it was very much in a, a game theoretical way, and Beale was trying to make himself, in a sense, into uh, the perfect playing computer yeah. to try to, to try to outplay these players. Uh, I don't think that he ever mathematically got up to what was even then state of the art about employing, uh, you know, employing computer scientists uh, using artificial intelligence and game theory. I think he was trying to learn the game at as high a level as he could. Michael, it's time now for our weekly quiz. We usually make this a little bit more Irish-oriented, but we've changed that for you because it wouldn't be fair. Which American gambling icon said, trust everyone, but always cut the cards? Would that be uh, Amarillo Slim? It wasn't. It was Benny Binion. In January uh, 2012, poker stars introduced what innovation to the world of poker? I can't even think of like a witty non-answer, so I better pass. <laughs> it was their first mobile client. Uh, which oh, WSOP okay. main event champion is the distant cousin of a three-time major winning Irish golfer? Oh, that would be Dan Harrington. Correct. How many times has Phil Helmut Jr. lost heads up for a WSOP bracelet? Four. It's nine times, actually. Now we have a little maths question. Ace-King suited versus Ace-King suited all in pre will end up in a split pot how often? A, 85.7%, B, 87.3%, or C, 89.1%? C. It's A, 85.7%. How many times (laughs) has Michael Craig cashed the WSOP? Five times. You've cashed seven times, Michael. You don't even remember your own life. Okay, and your final question. Name me 10 of the 12 poker players pictured on the cover of the Full Tilt Strategy Guide. Okay. Uh, Ted Forrest, Howard Lederer, Richard Brody, Mike Matiso. Yep. Andy Block. Yeah. Chris Ferguson. Yep. David Gray. Correct. I think through the names. Ray First, Phil Gordon. Just one more. Okay, Mike, think of one more here. Um, and don't look at the book that's probably on your shelf. No, I'm, I'm not looking around. Actually, I'm trying to think of the games and uh, who would be in the uh, the games. I can't think of a tenth. Who have I missed? You've missed, I think you missed Keith Sexton. You missed Hookseed. And hang on, let me look. Uh, Gavin Smith. Finally, Michael, before you go, uh, Poker Stars and, and Poker Stars Casino have employed you recently now. You're, you're sort of writing articles about smart, interesting risk takers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. The, uh, uh, they, uh, they're they looking to sponsor some content. Some of it's going to be on Poker Stars sites. Others they want me to uh, sell or place on uh, outside sites. And uh, some of these things have poker stars angles. Obviously, when they do, they'll be uh, clearly disclosed. But otherwise, they just want to sponsor material and get the poker stars name out there in new areas with some good content. So uh, I did a piece about Alexander Dreyfus for uh, Poker News. I wrote an article about Michael Shackelford, the Wizard of Odds in Las Vegas. That appeared on CalvinAir.com. Uh, I oh no actually no I wrote about the secret blackjack ball that appeared oh uh, I read that one that was a great piece yeah it, the, uh, I, it was great fun to learn about and then Michael Shackelford the Wizard of Oz I'm trying to sell to a, a science publication I'm also I also just did an interview with Brad Willis who won the American Poker Award for poker media content Lo- of the lovely year. writer lovely writer for a long time what ten years he's gone 
Oh yeah, the, uh, and th- th- that itself, just being able to like keep a gig in writing uh, in the internet age for ten years is uh, you know shows a massive amount of talent. And he wrote, you know, he writes during the main event three or four articles a day, and a pair of them won the American Poker Award. And the thing that was most interesting to me wasn't oh, their unusually great quality. It was their usually great quality. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate that. Um, oh, wonderful being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the chip race. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you guys, the direction you take this podcast in. Playing us off tonight is yet another Irish band with a poker connection. A couple of years ago, Barry Malarkey quit full-time poker to pursue a career in music, and since then his band Youth Mass have become one of the hottest indie bands around. From their album Morning Run, Evening Sun, this is Youth Mass and Dream On.
thank you to Connor, Finton, Kevin and of course Michael next week is the Irish Open and next Monday is Easter Monday so we'll be going out on Tuesday night instead we have an exciting show lined up with news and more from the Burlington as well as an interview with poker pro sports better and former Irish Open champion Neil Channing we'll also be checking in with our good friend Willie Elliott until then from the two Daras and myself good night and good luck <laughs>